Good morning again. It's a privilege to be with you in worship again this morning, and um, we are coming to the conclusion of a rather long study of Galatians that we began back in the fall. Uh, this week will be the second to last, and next week we'll conclude. Um, we meant to conclude this week, but because of the, the snowpocalypse a few weeks ago, we're a little bit behind. Um, but this is our New Testament reading. This is Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap destruction eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. This is the word of the Lord. In In 2006, Michael Lewis wrote the book, The Blind Side, which chronicled the changing nature of the game of football. See Super Bowl Sunday, football illustration. There you go. And he was talking about how the left tackle, which was historically one of the most overlooked positions, became one of the most important and one of the most highly compensated positions in the National Football League. Now, the reason for this is because quarterbacks, who are generally the most fragile players on the team, who are also the most highly paid, and uh, the franchise players normally, they're mostly right-handed. And so the left tackle protects them from concussions and from injury, from getting just drilled from their blind side. Now, think with me, though. Even if you're a, very, a sports buff, a sports person, how many left tackles can you name? you probably can't even name the left tackle on your favorite NFL team. Now, incidentally, Michael Ower, who is the subject of the blind side, is the starting tackle, left tackle, for the Carolina Panthers who are playing in the Super Bowl this afternoon. So that's the kind of service that I offer you as your pastor, the inside scoop to the game, something to look for, even if you don't care for football. The left tackle plays one of the most critical roles on a winning team, and yet hardly anyone watches them during the play. Few people wear their jerseys. They don't make it on SportsCenter. Now, Paul is describing a community that flourishes when its members aren't out for their own good, for their own glory, their own success, their own name in the paper, but care enough about the community and the health of others to put themselves at risk to make sure others flourish. 
And here we see the paradox of the gospel and the challenge of Christianity because its good news isn't an invitation to an easier life. It's good news, but it's a life of sacrifice, a cruciform life. You see, the good news is not that if you believe and you behave, that life will go well for you. But instead, that when you become a Christian, you are thrust into a community where other people's burdens become yours to bear. There's a lot of almost many sermons here in this passage, and we don't have time to address all of them. They read almost like Proverbs, a lot of wise sayings that come at the end of this long treatise about the law and the gospel. And it's hard to see initially how they relate. They just seem like random moral maxims. But what he's talking about here, and the thread that is kind of threaded through each of these is he's talking about the necessity and the difficulty of maintaining gospel-centered relationships in the church. The necessity and the difficulty of maintaining gospel-centered relationships in the church. Now, one of, the health, one of the ingredients of a healthy church or healthy community is relationships that are intimate enough to be aware of individual needs and individual patterns of sin. Now, maybe this gives you the creeps a little bit because perhaps you've been in one of those churches that, where there's a lot of confrontation, there's a lot of knowledge, but maybe not quite so much love and acceptance. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of one of those drive-by confrontations that's justified by that phrase, speaking the truth in love. It's a great phrase, but it's kind of slippery, and sometimes it justifies a boatload of truth with just a little bit of love and concern. But for Paul, the interest is always restoration, not just making a point, not just getting something off your chest. And we all know how difficult this is to be that kind of person that can speak into someone's life in a way that they actually listen and hear. Because most of us are either very direct people or we're very diplomatic. But rare is the person that can do both of those at the same time. They can speak truth and yet do it in a way that is gracious and is received. This kind of person, the one who can be direct and diplomatic, can speak into your life with urgency. They can challenge you in some deep places in your life, and it can be a painful encounter because someone noticing your shortcomings, noticing your sin patterns, is always uncomfortable. But it still feels like a gift when that sort of person does it. They have this masterful ability to convey love and support that, they, that you come to believe that they're there to help you, not to judge you. And these are the types of people that produce the community that Paul is talking about here, a community that is on one hand both loving and very accepting, but is also at the same time challenging and transformative. You see, it's a community that's neither condemning nor condoning. It's a community or a relationship or person where you know by that community or by that person that you are loved so much, where people are so committed to your spiritual health that they will risk your disapproval in order to tell you, in order to help you. 
these types of people are rare because to be a person that is non-judgmental and committed to confronting your stuff is difficult. It's difficult to be that kind of person. But what Paul is saying is that in Christian community, it actually shouldn't be rare. It shouldn't be exceptional. It should be normal to love someone enough to tell them the truth and to be secure enough in the love of God in order to listen. You see, the person that is taking the initiative, the person who is seeking to restore, should have to be reminded, first of all, of God's grace in their own life, that they're no more holy than the person who is caught in sin. But at the same time, they're loved and accepted more than they can imagine, and so they're not threatened by this person's potential disapproval of them. They don't have to fear the rejection of the other person. They care more and love more than they care about the rejection, the potential difficulty. And for those of us on the receiving end, if we understand the gospel, we know that we're far worse of a sinner than we're even aware. And so it shouldn't surprise us when people notice shortcomings in our life that need addressing. But at the same time, you know if you're in Christ that you are loved and accepted and that that love and acceptance will never end And it's not because of your performance. And so you don't need to be defensive. You can be free to listen. You can be free to learn. You can be free to be restored. Well, how do we do this? Paul gives us, I think, some incredibly potent and some incredibly practical device and our direction. First of all, notice the circumstances are when someone is caught Someone is caught in sin, and this is important because Paul isn't encouraging us to become the the moral gatekeepers of our community who jump into each and every opportunity to correct someone. No, in fact, he says elsewhere that love covers a multitude of sin. That is, love gives the benefit of the doubt to other people's actions. Love puts the best interpretation on their actions. Love isn't seeking the opportunity to be proved right. He's encouraging us to step into a very specific situation when someone is caught in a sin. Now, what does that mean? First of all, Paul seems to be talking about a pattern, a repeated pattern. He's not saying to challenge someone at the drop of a hat You see, we're all sinning more than we even recognize. And so if we see it as our job to confront and point out each and every person's sin, we're not going to have time for much else. Generally speaking, someone is caught in a sin. It's an issue where there's a repeated, destructive, and serious issue going on in someone's life, so much that they need restoration. They need to be brought back into fellowship, brought back into right relationship with God and with the community. Then secondly, someone who is caught in a sin is not someone that is necessarily fully aware of their destructive patterns. You see, a, a bank robber is caught, but not because they turn themselves in, but because of circumstances that are beyond their control. They're not looking to reform their behavior, but someone catches them and forces their hand. The worst things about us normally are those things that we don't realize, that we don't recognize 
in our own lives, things that we are in denial about. And denial in many ways is the essence of sin because what we're saying in denial is that we don't need grace. We don't need help. We don't need restoration. Restoring someone who is caught in sin is loving them enough to address patterns of thought and of behavior that are so insidious that the person may not even be aware of it. And that's why it becomes difficult, because sometimes you bring something to someone and it's a surprise to them. You know, an, an addict is generally not aware of the depth of the problem. A narcissist thinks that everyone sees the world in the same way that they do and see themselves in the same way. An angry person justifies their behavior by the behavior of those around them or by their family of origin. They justify it. It's a form of denial. The judgmental person justifies their behavior by defending truth or defending God when really they're just making a point and they have some internal problems that are going on. These people, these are people who are caught in a sin and it takes a loving brother or sister to be intimate enough with them to notice these behaviors and to love them enough to call them on it and to challenge them, but not in a judgmental way, not in a condemning way, but in a way that is restorative. Paul is encouraging us to address destructive patterns, not just things that annoy you in other people's lives, not just things that irritate you, but things that are patterns, things that someone needs restoration from. Now, as we've hinted at, this terrain is fraught with problems, fraught with landmines, and we should be cautious when we take it upon ourselves to address someone's sin patterns. And Paul gives us cautions. First of all, he is clearly talking about addressing sin within the church. He is calling us to restore fellow Christians. In other words, restoring someone means that they have taken a step out of some situation. They've lost something that they had before. It doesn't mean that they have lost their complete relationship with God or lost their salvation, but it's something that they have stepped out of. They need to be restored back into. That is, we're talking about fellow believers, people within the church. This is not calling people outside of the church to task for their misbehavior. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? To confront a non-Christian, a non-believer about what the Bible says about their behavior isn't only going to be ineffective, but it presents Christianity as a system of rules, as a system of behavior. People outside the church don't need confrontation over behavior. They need an invitation to Jesus because only when their lives are brought into the orbit of Jesus do the Christian ethics even make sense to them. So first of all, a caution is that we should be helping brothers and sisters, pointing out patterns of sin, not just to anyone and everyone outside the church. Secondly, he says, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves because you may also be tempted. Watch yourselves Look at your own life carefully and critically. 
Paul has stressed over and over that in the church there's not two communities, but there's one community. Everyone is equally in need of grace. The person that is doing the restoration is just as vulnerable and just as liable to fall into the same sin pattern that they're addressing in the other person. In fact, the sin patterns that you tend to notice in other people are those things that you tend to struggle with or have struggled with. So watch out. Be careful. The person who knows that they're just as in need of grace, that they're just as liable to fall into the sin pattern that they're addressing in someone else is the person who can address it graciously, is the person who can address it without condemnation and without condoning in such a way that that person actually begins to listen. Now, we all know that this is a work of art, not of science. It's a work of the Spirit, not just of technique. This sort of thing isn't easily learned. But what does it feel like when you strike the right balance? How do we know that we're doing it correctly? Well, first of all, it will feel heavy. It will feel like a burden. Verse 2 says, carry each other's burdens. And you can't relieve someone else's burdens without being burdened yourself. I think this is why he tells us in verse 10, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. It's not because believers are somehow more worthy of your help. It's that they're the closest. It's that they're there. They're present. They're right in front of you. You see, one of the biggest impediments to helping someone right next to you is it's more difficult than it is to help someone far away. It's much easier to write the check to the starving orphan around the world than it is to have a difficult conversation with someone who you're intimate with. It's much easier to write that check than to carry the burdens of our next-door neighbor who is kind of annoying and talks too much. Now, we should still write the check. We should still care for the needs of the world across the world, people that we don't know, but really as an extension of the practice of love and carrying burdens of those right next to us not as an exemption from it. Now, Martin Luther was one of the great Protestant reformers, and he was transfixed by this letter to Galatians. And in addition to writing a long commentary on this book, he also wrote a Christian, and bear with him here because he uses sort of feudal language that's kind of foreign to our ears, but he says, a Christian is is a perfectly free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian is also a perfectly dutiful servant of all and subject to all. A year after writing these words, he goes to Worms, which is the place where he is facing the worst ordeal of his life. He's being called a dissenter, a heretic, that he's divisive, that he's destroying the church, and he's called to give an account. He's called to trial, and so he travels to Worms, and when he gets there, he's exhausted. He's traveled. Traveling that day was very difficult and very tiring, and so he's exhausted. He goes to bed. What does he do the next morning? The trial is in the afternoon. He wakes up, and instead of pouring over his notes and preparing and memorizing his speech and thinking about what he's going to say like you and I probably would, what does he do? He goes and visits with a dying man who had asked to meet with him, and he administers the sacraments and hears this man's confession. 
And history tells us that Martin Luther walked into the greatest ordeal of his life with a smile on his face. Not the smirk like we saw of Martin Screlly this week, the smirk of someone who knows they've been caught, but someone who is delighting in the Lord, who is affirmed in who they are, who is secure in their position, come whatever might come. And in those days, the charge of heresy could be a life and death situation. He enters the hall smiling. One writer comments on this and says, in that single story, we learn the deep secrets of the free life. When we are released from self-centered fears, when we learn to trust God's power instead of our own, we are free to give ourselves to others. Martin understood who Jesus was for him, and it set him free. It gave him a smile. It allowed him to walk into the greatest ordeal of his life and be at peace. He knew the story of Jesus. Did you notice the second half of verse 2? It says, here's the imperative, carry each other's burdens. But here's why, and here's what that means. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ. We've spent this whole letter trying to find a distinction between the law and Jesus. Paul has been setting these two things up as antonyms. The law and Christ are opposites, but here, the law of Christ is the motivation to love and serve others. How can he suddenly speak of the law of Christ? Well, our clue is in the word fulfill, which we saw last chapter a few weeks ago. And if you were here, you remember that Christ is said to have fulfilled the law in what? In his self-sacrificial death. He fulfilled the law in carrying the burdens of the world in dying for the sin of the world. That's how he fulfilled the law. The law pointed to him, his life, his death, his resurrection. That is carrying your burden and my burden. His sacrificial left, death, his love of neighbor, his carrying of your burdens, that's the law of Christ. That's the life of Christ, the person of Christ. And you see, you are called to carry, and I'm called to carry, other people's burdens, but only after you realize that you can't carry your own, that you have this burden of sin that you can't carry, and you need grace. And it's only after you realize that, if you've, after you come to terms with the truth about yourself, that you can speak truth and love to someone else. You see, He looked at you and loved you enough to tell you the truth, to tell you that you needed rescue, that you needed salvation. But see, when you're challenged by Jesus, when you're confronted by Him, you realize that He's an artist, that He's neither condemning nor condoning. You see, He sees your sin, and He wants to do something about it, but he's not repulsed by you. His compassion draws him into relationship with you. He's willing to do anything to keep you from destroying yourself and destroying other people and enslaving yourself to your sin patterns. 
So what does he do? He carries your burden. He goes to the cross and he sacrifices himself so that you could be set free, so that you could have that free life that Martin Luther seemed to be animated by and transfixed by. And it's out of that abundance that you can carry other people's burdens. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is known for being a place where burdens can be shared and where burdens are lifted. Lord, I pray that we would be a place that is known not for being condemning, but also not for condoning, that people would step in here and that they would meet Jesus and that Jesus, you would challenge us all that we can come from wherever we are, but we can't stay there because your grace is active and at work and wants to liberate us from our sin. Lord, I pray that that would be the experience. Those who come in with deep sin patterns, which is all of us, would be able to acknowledge from a place of safety and acceptance who we are and what we have done and that we would receive forgiveness, not only from you, but from the gathering of people who know you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be that place. Help us to be a place that sows peace and sows transformation. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.